Open your Bibles once again to John chapter 4 as we continue looking at this narrative of Jesus and the Samaritan woman even on this Thanksgiving week. There's plenty of application of Thanksgiving uh, from this text together this morning and our focus this morning is on John chapter 4 verses 27 through 42. If you think back to where we've been in the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, verses uh, 7 through 26, what we've looked at over the course of the last few weeks has really focused upon one scene. It's been focused upon this interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. It's just been settled there, and we've just been listening to the, the conversation between these two individuals as Jesus is trying to reveal to this woman who he is, and she's slowly, progressively beginning, and ultimately, I think, to confess that Jesus is the Messiah. But in verses 27 through 42, we're in the same context here, but the pace of the narrative really begins to pick up. Instead of being stationary, focusing upon just one conversation, we begin to see a jumping from one scene to the next. For instance, in verses 27 through 30, we're going to see the disciples return to the well. They're going to see Jesus uh, talking to the Samaritan woman. We're going to see the Samaritan woman's departure from the well to go uh, back into the city to go and meet with the Samaritans. And then in the next section, in verses 31 through 38, the camera returns to the well while the Samaritan woman is off back home talking to the Samaritans. In verses 31 through 38, the camera comes back. And it's interesting. Uh, uh, we're going to see it's almost like the Samaritan woman and the uh, disciples switch places here. Uh, the well, it appears, is almost like a schoolhouse that Christ has set up. And just as he was instructing the Samaritan woman at this very well in verses 7 through 26, when we get down to verses 31 through 38, it's clear that he's instructing the disciples in almost the exact same way. And then there's a third section in verses 39 through 42 where the camera is going to widen out and the Samaritans come to see Jesus at the behest of the Samaritan woman and we're going to see uh, them asking Jesus to stay with them a while, learn more, and then ultimately they do come to believe. So there's much more movement in, uh, in this passage. So let's read the text together. John chapter 4, I'll begin reading in verse 27, and I'll read uh, to the end of verse 42. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. And then the scene shifts, verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. 
Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. And then the scene switches. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, but we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the revelation of yourself to us, propositionally and through Jesus Christ. Father, as we follow this narrative, we are again reminded it's not about the Samaritans. It's not about the Samaritan woman. It's not necessarily about the disciples. It's about you. It's about the glory of Christ. And so, Father, even as we unfold the, the movement in this narrative that John has written for us under divine inspiration, help us to understand there are no arbitrary details. There's nothing that's not worthy of consideration. Everything is meaningful. Everything points to Christ. Everything applies to helping us, out of a heart of gratitude, live lives unto Jesus, unto you for your glory and for our good, our joy. Father, we pray that today, if there be any one among us in the spirit of the Samaritans who were not in a relationship with you. Father, you would use this text to reveal the glory of Christ so that that soul might today say, it's not because the preacher said it, it's not because my friend told me, it's because my eyes have been opened to behold the glory of Christ. He is indeed the Savior of the world. Father, bring the gift of repentance and faith that only you can bring to every soul. And for those who are true believers, Father, help us to understand how to, how to live lives of gratitude unto Jesus where you have us. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want in our time together this morning just simply to follow the three scenes that John shifts between. Uh, again, when you read, it can almost come across as very jumpy. It can almost come across as, you know, nothing really of significance here. He, he's nothing of significance here, nothing of significance here. Maybe he's just kind of closing out the story so he can move on to the next thing. But one thing we know about John in the gospel, in the epistles, in the book of Revelation he, he, not a word is ever wasted. Everything he does has intentionality behind it. And the same will be true in, in these passages as well. So let's look together at these three passages one at a time, making some observations and, and prayerfully drawing some application to our own lives for them. The first scene, which runs from verses 27 through 30. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. 
Well, the first thing that John shows us is the return of the disciples. So Jesus has been talking to the Samaritan woman for some time. It's been a, a, very, a very profound and a deep conversation. And the disciples had been away from this scene tracking down food. And now in, in these verses, they're coming back. And we don't naturally just pick up on it, but it's a very awkward moment. There's a very intense awkwardness when the disciples return from the city and they find Jesus conversing with this Samaritan woman at the well. Remember, this woman had three things against her. Number one, she was a Samaritan. So the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans was not a good one. It was one of hostility, one of hatred. So immediately, when the disciples see Jesus talking to a Samaritan, all of a sudden, things are getting heightened. Number two, she's a woman. In this day, she was a woman, and a Jewish man would never converse openly with a woman in the way that Jesus did. And then there's a third thing, which we don't know specifically how well the disciples were familiar with this truth, but maybe from her appearance, it was obvious. She was an adulteress. So you combine these elements together, and as the disciples return in, it's kind of an awkward situation. If you kind of imagine the tension of the air, think about when you've been in awkward situations where something is just right there in front of you. Maybe it's a family situation or maybe a, a work situation. It's right there in front of you. How do you respond in the midst of awkwardness when the tension is high and it's in the air? You know what everyone's thinking. Everyone knows what everyone's thinking. Isn't there that moment of just kind of, you just kind of look down? Or you drift and look up? There's an awkward silence. That's what's going on here. I picture the disciples avoiding eye contact with Jesus, avoiding eye contact with the woman. I picture the Samaritan woman probably looking down. Can't look at these disciples in the eye. She knows the cultural background. She knows the hostility. Completely avoiding eye contact with these Jews. And I picture Jesus confidently looking the disciples right in the eyeball and looking at the Samaritan woman and grinning because he knows what's going on in their minds. But more importantly, he knows what's in his heart. The significant thing to notice here in the midst of this awkwardness is the mind of Christ and how the mind of Christ, the ways of Christ were often at odds with the cultural norms of the day. That what was important to Christ just did away with what was expected in the culture. Christ's view of the world was at odds with the world's view of the world. Christ's view of the world was at odds with what his disciples were thinking at this very moment. Christ's view of the situation was completely different from what the Samaritan woman was thinking at this moment. When the disciples looked at this woman, they saw a sinner. Somebody worthless. Somebody Jesus should not be talking to. And when Jesus looked at this woman, he saw one whom the Father before the foundation of the world laid claim upon. And he was sent, he had to pass through Jerusalem to go to this well for this divine appointment. You see the tension there. The tension between the way the world thinks and even followers of Christ can think versus how God thinks. 
It's a difficult thing, but I think it's a good thing for you and I as Christians to be aware of the fact our own thinking about things in the world has been cultivated by various things. Our experiences, our society. It's been colored by just things we perceive, things we grew up learning and teaching, sometimes even within the confines of the church. One of the defining characteristics, characteristics of a true believer is humility. But oh, there's so very little of that in the church today. Humility that says, I die to my wants. I die to, to, to the things that I hold dear. I die to my former ways of thinking, which have even bled into somewhat of who I am as a Christian. It's I dying to self and, and a living unto God. My ways are no longer my ways. His ways are. That's humility. I'm no longer contending against God for supremacy. He is supreme. And what he says goes. And how he thinks has to be my thoughts. And what he does has to be what I do. What he says should be what I say. That's humility. He's the master. He's the king. We live in a day today where Christians continue to want to profess their faith in God, but contend against him when it comes to their rights, their beliefs, their convictions, the things they've always held. All of us view the world in a particular way. And we always assume our way is the right way. That's just a given. How many of our battles, even within the life of the church, is a battle between I view life, I view the world, I view the church, I view Christianity, I view this way, and obviously you don't view it the way that I do, and so we argue, we don't talk to each other, we split. We all view the world in a particular way. And we always assume ours is the right way. And in a perfect world, everyone else should see it my way as well. But that's not the Christian way. As Christians, we ought to live aware of the possibility how I view the world is probably wrong. Probably wrong. Why? Because God's ways are not my ways. God's ways are not my thoughts. And I am not God. Therefore, almost everything I do, barring intense grace and sanctification, will be initially what? Wrong. But where is that in the life of the church? From leadership on down. Where is that? I am probably wrong. Christians should be ones who humbly recognize I'm not omniscient. The very fact that I have devoted myself to one who is exposes I need him because he has what I don't. And because he's omniscient, I seek to know him. I want to know his thoughts. Because mine are probably wrong. And out of my love for him, I want to think his thoughts. The Christians should seek to lay hold of God's mind and to know his ways. And how in the world can we do that? It's in his word where he has revealed these things. 
As Christians, we ought to be the people who are constantly asking. Now, I have no shortage of opinions on what I think, but am I right on any of them? And not be afraid of that question. We know everyone has a worldview. We do too. A way of interpreting the world around us. But for you and I as Christians, we are asking the question, do I have the correct one? Has my thinking been conformed to the likeness of Christ? Have I been molded in my thinking to God's own thoughts? Are my opinions biblical ones? Are they distinctively Christian? Do I have the mind of Christ? Is what I'm saying what God would say? Is what I'm treasuring what Christ treasures? Is what I love and what I hold precious what Christ holds precious? When you get to the disciples here, and they walk up and they see Jesus talking to this Samaritan woman, you know what they're thinking. Because we have it. Jesus. What do you seek? There must be a really important thing you need, Jesus, because there's no other explanation for you to be talking to this woman. Why are you talking with her? In their minds, what? It's wrong for Jesus to be talking to this woman. It's wrong. And we realize that these disciples, they've still got a long way to go in their discipleship with Jesus. Three years they're going to spend with Jesus. And this is very early on in the process, and we see they are not yet what they will be. That the work of cultivating a worldview that agrees with God is a slow process and requires a work of grace to create steady transformation. These disciples, they're not there yet. Their minds will be progressively renewed to think God's own thoughts. They're going to come to see and to think biblically a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more as they spend more time close in proximity to Jesus Christ. Well, their journey's our journey. The same journey they're on, this, this long journey to grow in a biblical understanding of the world and things. You were on that same journey. No, we don't have the privilege of having the incarnate Christ walking in front of us and sitting to, at His feet the way that they did. But we do have the Word written. We have the Holy Spirit. We have everything that we need. The question is, do we take it seriously? Do we understand that this is the way of the Christian? To be conformed to the likeness of Christ. To be growing to think God's own thoughts and to live faithfully as ambassadors to Him in our lives. And are we willing to submit what I think is right under the weight of it's probably wrong just because the work of sanctification is progressive. But I'm going to search the Scriptures to know. What does God say? And I'm going to die to myself. And in this situation, class is in session for these disciples. What Jesus exposes, one, is that Jesus is not confined by the world's 
systems of right and wrong. That the Father is concerned for His glory to save a people unto Himself, and that includes Samaritans, and that includes women's. Those would have been revolutionary in that day. Not so much in our day, but in their day would have been revolutionary. Even the Samaritans. Women are of no less value to God than men. They're unique. God created us different, but not different in value. God is concerned to call sinners to Himself. These disciples, early in their ministry, these are going to be the the pillars of the church going forward in the book of Acts. They're not prepared for that. They're not prepared for what happens at Pentecost. They've got to grow in their thinking to understand God's own thoughts about the Samaritans and about others, about women. And about what truly matters to God. Another thing we see here in this opening scene here. And it's something that you almost miss it. The, the, the narrative points to she's leaving, the Samaritan woman's leaving Jesus in the well and the disciples, all that awkwardness. Let me just see my way out of this. And go back to the city and tell Tell the people what I've just seen, which is a massive knowing who she is and the fact that she came at noon to avoid people. She's gonna, it's made such an impression. But John tells us something that is, if you know John's writings, I mean, it's not incidental. She leaves the water pot behind. I mean, you look at that and, and you almost think incidental detail, just kind of. I think it's, Tells us a couple things. Number one, he was an eyewitness to this. John was in the midst of this. John was one of the disciples who's whistling and looking up at the sky as the Samaritan woman, and it's awkward, and there's tension. And he's an, an eyewitness to, she's leaving. It's going to make things a lot better. Oh, she left her, her water pot. It meant enough, as John had had time to think about this narrative and how it fit into his gospel, to say, you know what, there's something there. It tells us at least, one, he's an eyewitness. Two, probably she planned to come back. When she left, she wasn't leaving like, i got to escape this situation. I'm never coming back. She needs that water pot. She's coming back. But thirdly, and this is somewhat speculative, but think about the conversation that's gone on in verses 7 through 26. The woman came looking for water physical water, to quench her physical thirst. Jesus offers her spiritual water that if she drinks of, she will never thirst again. Now again, we got all that, the confusion and chaos that she doesn't understand, she doesn't get it. But as Christ presses in upon her heart, upon her soul, calling her to repent of her worldliness, causing, calling her to repent of her life in pursuing joy and happiness and life in sin, in sexual relationships, calling her to repent, she does indeed leave those worldly things behind to seek the things that are above. And you can't help but think that possibly, probably, John includes this little detail here about the water pot to symbolize the reality. She's bought in. She's repented. This woman is no longer concerned about earthly water. 
but desiring the water that only Christ could give, leaves it behind, let me go back to the city, get them to come into here. John has been telling us his whole purpose in writing is that we might believe and be, you know, believe uh, and live upon this. We might have faith and live upon it. It would make sense that he would leave this in to cause us to reflect upon. Isn't that the call of Christ? We spend our lives drinking from the cisterns of this world. We expect them to satisfy. We think they're going to quench our thirst. But they don't. And we feel helpless. We feel lost. Well, what will? And then Christ reveals His glory to us. I offer you living water. And when you drink from the fountain that is Christ, you found there's greater joy in Him than in anything else I've ever known. And to walk with Christ is to cling to Him, to drink from Him, to live upon Him. Because nothing compares to Him. The true believer knows that. And believes that and lives upon that. And by leaving this water pot behind, it appears. I mean, symbolically, we don't have chapter and verse that says this was her thinking. But it sure appears this is symbolically reflective of what she came for living water. She came for water, physical water, and found in Christ something that satisfied her even more. Such that in that moment, even physical water was of no value to her. It couldn't compare to him. We talked about it this morning. We live this life pursuing satisfaction, contentment, joy, peace, and pleasure in the things of this world. And then you get them, and then you find very quickly it doesn't give us everything we thought it would. We drink and drink and drink and drink, but then never quenched. God says you're drinking from the wrong cisterns. It's what we read this morning in Jeremiah chapter 2. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is the very essence of sin. We were made to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Sin is our love is misdirected. Now we love something more than Him. We were created to worship God. Sin is now our worship is misdirected. We don't worship God. You can even go to church and not worship God. We worship other things. Sin is that when you and I drink from the wrong cistern and we put all of our chips in and say, but this thing is what will make me happy. This thing is what will satisfy. When in fact, only God in Christ can do. The woman left her water jar behind. Why? Christ was more precious to her than the very water she needed for life. And that is not elevating her to a level that we should aspire for. That is what a Christian is. That is what a Christian is. Christ is all. And so she runs home and Tells the hometown people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? 
What a transformation. I mean, just in a matter of what we perceive to be moments, hours maybe. She's gone from rejecting now to being a faithful witness to Christ. Come and see. Come and investigate. Come and meet this man. You see for yourself. And I think because of this, and what we've seen previous in John, I think John is creating for us a, a pattern for Christians. The pattern is to see Christ, to believe in Christ, to lay claim of Him, to follow Him, and then out of the overflow of your love for Him, come and see for yourself. Come and taste for yourself that we who know Christ would serve as witnesses to testify to His glory, His greatness, His sufficiency. He is the Savior of the world. Well, the scene shifts in verses 31 through 38. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought Him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have now entered into their labor. What's interesting here is the parallel between Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well and his conversation with the disciples here. What's interesting here is it's almost like this well was an ordained classroom setting where Jesus is going to stay here. And class is in session for these two groups of people. In his conversation with the Samaritan woman, Christ had moved the Samaritan woman's eyes from being fixated upon earthly things, water, physical earth, to heavenly things. Now he's doing the exact same thing with the disciples. You look at the text. The woman came to draw water. The disciples came bringing food. The woman said, or to the woman, Jesus said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Well, when the disciples urged Jesus to eat the physical food that he brought them, what does he say? I have food to eat that you don't know about. The woman misunderstood, saying, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the water from? Right? She didn't understand. Likewise, the disciples don't understand. Has someone brought him food to eat? You see, they don't get it. In the conversation, they bring something, there's a need. Their answer is physical. Jesus says something that, no, no, take your eyes off the physical to, to the spiritual. And in both of them, they don't understand. School's in session. Christ for both is encouraging them to look beyond the physical things of this world so that they might understand the spiritual, so that they might understand God and His purposes. The woman was looking for the wrong things to find satisfaction and 
to find salvation. The disciples, likewise, were looking to the wrong things for nourishment and strength and purpose. When Jesus said he had food to eat they don't know about, he wasn't talking about food. He said what? In verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He's doing to them what he did to the Samaritan woman. Your concern, he said to the Samaritan woman, is physical water. What does he say to the disciples now? Your concern is physical food. You're in need and you're looking for physical bread to move you along, to, to give you nourish, to strengthen you, to drive you, to motivate you, to get you to the next thing. You're looking to physical food. That's not what motivates and drives and moves me. What moves me is the Father's will. Doing what pleases Him. Don't live for the things of this world. Live for the Father. Live for what moves Him. For His plans and His purposes. That's your strength. That's your nourishment. Jesus was more concerned about His spiritual appetite doing the will of the Father than he was about his fleshly appetite. Now, I'm not standing up here saying that's easy. I mean, you hear that and it doesn't sound very practical. But it's not so much that, no, 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 you don't eat food anymore. Your food now is to do the will of the Father. Jesus is going to continue to eat food. The issue here is priorities. The priorities our priorities tend to be focused opposite of what Jesus's are here. Our priorities tend to be focusing upon this world, on the flesh, on our needs, our wants, our desires, and secondarily, our spiritual needs and wants. For Jesus, those things are reversed. What's of most importance is God. Life was created for God. Life was not to be lived for food on this Thanksgiving week when we will gorge ourselves on food, and I'll be doing it too. But we keep in mind that this world was not made for food. Food was made for this life. This life was made for God. Food was made to nourish us for God. And that's the priority. That's what's going on here. Life was not driven by the appetites of the flesh. Life was not made to be driven by what do you want? What will make you happy? What will make you feel good? Life was created to, you were made for God, to honor Him, to please Him. And Christ says, that's my food. That's more important to me than physical bread. Yeah, my stomach is rumbling right now, but more satisfying than food on it is my God. Accomplishing His will. Doing His work for His glory of bringing in this harvest from before the foundation of the world that will bring Him glory and joy to those who He's laid claim upon. And then He goes into this about the laboring and the, the reaping and all. He's opening their eyes to the fact that right now where they stand in enemy territory, look around, the field is white for harvest. And you know that these Jewish disciples are, whoa, 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 whoa. We're in Samaria. Wait, wait, wait. No, 
Jerusalem's just over the hill here. We'll go back over here or this way. Fields are white. We're in Samaria. Fields, no, no, no. We, we get where you're going with this, Jesus, but don't forget, you're in Samaria. Jews live north of here and south of here. It's the worldview, isn't it? He's showing them their thinking is not his thinking. Lift your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Hey, Jewish disciples. There's a boatload of Samaritan city people about to come over this hill. There's only a few of you Jewish followers of me. There's a, you're about to be outnumbered by these Samaritans. The fields are white for harvest. It's these Samaritans. Others have labored. We're entering into their labor. Who are the laborers? They're not named exactly. Again, they're in Samaritan territory. Probably the influence of John the Baptist. And again, remember the Samaritans are a mixed breed of Jews and Gentiles. So certainly the Old Testament prophets would have been there as well. And now there's an awareness of a coming Messiah. And these Samaritans... I have to stand face to face before him. And their testimony will be, this is indeed the Savior of the world. And that's the third scene that we see in verses 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony that he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. It really is incredible. Time doesn't allow us. There are very few Jewish followers of Jesus at this point. Again, going back to chapter 2, many had laid claim upon Jesus, but Jesus, knowing what was in their hearts, he did not lay claim of them. Jesus knows what's in their hearts. But these Samaritans come. This was an unexpected development for these disciples. And what was the means of grace here? It was this Samaritan woman. Her faithful testimony. Come and see the man who told me about things that... Nobody could know. I'll just say it. I'm a little bit leery of people giving their personal testimony. I have a bent in that way. And some of you will cringe and say, well, that's not very Christ-like. And that's probably true. Here's why I'm leery. And it's true for me. Too often our personal testimony is just that. It's about me and what I've done and what I did and my experiences. I'm all for testimony. But the testimony is, come and see Christ, who he is, what he has done. There is a massive difference. And if you go and look at her testimony, come and see him. Come and see what he knows. Come and see the spectacle. Come and see the glory. Come and see the former, any other way of personal testimony that's, well, I found this. I went to this church. I did this. I, did, I, I experienced this. Just stop. We're ambassadors of Christ. The woman shared what she knew about Christ. And you got to come see him. 
And that's what we're to do. That's what we're to do. To tell this is who Christ is. Come and see. Many of us hesitate to do that because we're fear of what comes next. I'm not going to know enough. They're going to have questions and I'm not going to know the answer. So two things I'd say that. Number one, well then it's probably a great time to get to know your Savior. I mean, it's probably way past time to get to know and understand the person and work of Jesus. I would commend to you that's what Christianity is. To know Christ. To love Him. To walk with Him. You don't intimidate by somebody asking you about your spouse or your children or your grandchildren. Why? You know them well. It, you should be more familiar with Christ than anybody else. But not everybody knows everything about Christ. He's, in, he's inexhaustible. So come and see. What do you bring them to the church? Bring them to the place where week after week. Jesus will be proclaimed, exalted. If you don't have the gift of teaching or evangelism, take them to those who do. Bring them on the Lord's Day where the word of Christ is preached. If you're unable to take them to Scripture and say, look and see, bring them to where In this Thanksgiving week, there's a lot to be grateful for. A lot. The grace of God in Christ Jesus. You know this Samaritan woman had much to be thankful for. The Samaritan people had much to be thankful for. So do we. Yes, the things of this world. But our priority is what? What Jesus said to the Samaritan woman and to the disciples. Our priority is not physical water, physical food, physical stuff. The priority is what? Him. The glory of God. Is that what's most precious to you? Where are you in that? Have you drifted into worldliness and there's a need to repent? Return to your king? Are there others you'll come in contact this, this very week? Thanksgiving holiday will provide opportunity with family and friends. Hey, come and see I could tell you a lot of things about myself, but I'm nothing. Let me tell you, come and see the one who is. Does Christ consume you and me like that? That's Christianity. That's the work of the gospel in the soul. And that's who we, by God's grace, should be.